0: Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnicki. And as always, let's say hello to Sean.
1: Hello to Sean. You want want me to say hello to myself?
0: So Sean and I today, uh, as we do almost every week, are going to cover some interesting cases that are coming down from the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, and occasionally the... United States Supreme Court uh, I can't tell you where any of these cases came down off the top of my head right now but I think they're all court of appeal decisions I think so
1: Yeah. in California I think they might all be second appellate district too. the, the
0: ones that we have today. so it's a special second di- district of the court of appeal day
1: yeah it is it's a and it's also these are all very short cases um, which is appropriate because both Brian and I are pretty short nope. and also because I don't like reading so that was really uh, enjoyable. So we have four cases we're going to talk about today. Um, the first one is going to be a very, uh, very interesting, complex opinion with a complex set of facts uh, that has to do with uh, design immunity. No um, sarcasm. It's not very complex. And then we're going to talk about a uh, the CLRA and what someone needs to how ha- what qualifies as a consumer under the CLRA. Then we're going to talk about. Uh, standing to appeal a judgment in a class action, what objectors have to do in order to have their objection count. Um, And then we're going to talk about Lemon Law and attorney fees. So
0: I think all of the cases have complexities and issues in them, even though they are relatively short, which make for some interesting discussion. Uh, And the first case today I counted is exactly 11 or 12 paragraphs long. It is the shortest published decision. Short paragraphs, though. Yeah. They're yeah. all short. One of them is like 20 words long. One paragraph's 20 words long in one sentence. Uh, it is an incredibly short opinion. I, I'm not entirely sure why they publish this. Normally, you see short opinions like this when cases don't get published, but it is an interesting issue, sort of. And um, first of all, it it reinforces to you that people will file any lawsuit, right? Right. And um, secondly, it reinforces that every now and then you hear somebody complain about plaintiffs filing lawsuits, and they can point to a case like this, right?
1: Right. Um, But but in all seriousness, it actually illustrates a very interesting um doctrine in the law design immunity so let's start out with the set of facts here um it, the case by the way is Dobbs versus City of Los Angeles second appellate district it came down sometime in October um miss uh miss Dobbs was apparently walking in front of the Los Angeles Convention Center I've been there you have been there I think we've all been there at some point if we're in Los Angeles um and well before you get to that though met long before Ms. Dobbs came along The
0: Los Angeles Convention Center decided to put up Ballard's.
1: Ballards or ballards? Well, it's spelled ballards, but it's pronounced ballard. Okay. It's these, it's these concrete or sometimes metal things that are built into the ground that are designed to protect against car bombs so cars can't drive through them. You'll see them. I think they're required around all federal buildings. So you see them at the Spring Street Courthouse, the federal courthouse. They apparently have them also at the Los Angeles Convention Center. They're 17 half inches wide, 17 half inches tall, and what the Court of Appeal describes as the height of, the, of your average coffee table. Um, they're unpainted. They're concrete. They're big. They're large. There's 50 of them in front of the South Hall of the Convention Center where this accident occurred. And Ms. Dobbs walked into one of them yep. and apparently
0: was injured, and then went ahead and sued the City of Los Angeles.
1: Yep. In the um, nine years prior to Ms. Dobbs's accident, um, not a single person had ever filed an injury claim arising out of probably these because ballons.
0: they were too embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. We literally sound like yeah. two conservative radio uh, talk show hosts right, right now. Yeah, but, these but trial lawyers, these lawyers are getting cases. out of control. But, mm. but what the interesting issue about the case was, um, you could kind of predict from the very beginning where this is going to go. Absolutely. But what's interesting about this case is this concept of not just design immunity, but discretionary authority.
1: Yeah. Um, so... It, The principle that really on which the court granted, I believe they granted summary judgment here, was design immunity. And there's three elements for design immunity, comes from a case called Hampton versus County of San Diego. Um, a Pretty recent case too. I guess it might have been uh, revised recently. And um, the, the opinion doesn't discuss the first element. I, I think it must be a very simple element. Um, and I tried to look it up. It's not in the. It's not in the jury instructions. What is. Uh, We're what really means. providing people with yeah, useful seriously. information. We're, today, <laughs> <right>? We're just <laughs> reading cases and it. But the, to but back the key,
0: to you. the critical mm. issue here is discretionary authority, right. right? And discretionary authority is whether or not um, when you come to design issues like this. If someone's exercising their discretion about how a a particular product or a particular design is going to occur, they're given great latitude. That's because, remember, anytime you're suing a government entity, you're suing it because they've given you permission to. And if somebody is performing a task that is required, uh, a governmental task that's required, they can be sued. But when you start to work into the discretion, then sometimes you start getting into exceptions.
1: Yeah, uh, and what it requires is that somebody had gave discretionary approval of the design before construction that's what the second element of this is um, and over here a city engineer approved the plans for the Ballards and, and it was approved and the question and, the question is whether or not it was reasonable right and that's the, that's the third element uh, is there any substantial evidence of the reasonableness of the public entity's approval of the design and,
0: and interestingly enough Sean it's not a question of fact for the jury. It's a question of law about reasonableness under most circumstances. Right.
1: And and it's actually the, – the law says that the statute grants immunity as long as reasonable minds can differ concerning whether a design should have been approved. So it's not like the reasonable conclusion has to be that it should have been approved. It is safe. Reasonable minds can even differ and you still meet the standard here. And given the facts here, look, you know, she walked into this thing that's very obvious – uh, given the size of it and given its placement, uh, the, the court found that the okay. the
0: exercise of approval under these circumstances for this design was reasonable. So as a matter of law the case fails. And this goes into the unfortunate category sometimes of bad facts make bad law. yeah although I don't think this is any really restatement of this is simply a restatement of law. It's not necessarily a new law. it's not necessarily a new uh, a new issue, but it is also, as the court says at the very end, Um, there has to be some common sense.
1: Right. The court, I think that this can be all summed up in in two lines here. Tort law incorporates common sense. When one walks into a concrete pillar that is big and obvious, the fault is one's own.
0: And I want to go on the record right here to say that Sean has never sued for the many times he has walked into concrete pillars. Right. God bless you, Sean. Right.
1: Um, I I may one day sue Brian for walking into the glass doors of our conference room, but—
0: we have glass doors <laughs> Let's go to the next case it's Calta versus Fleets 101 Inc This case involves the Consumer Legal Remedies Act that's a California statute found at 1750 of the Civil Code
1: Also a short opinion short like us
0: And right and it is a short opinion but what it highlights is one important part of the Consumer Legal Remedies Act it is intended to protect obviously consumers but that means somebody acting in a personal capacity not necessarily in a in a corporate or a business capacity a business someone acting in a business capacity may not have standing to sue
1: right the definition of consumer comes from Uh, The CLRA, Civil Code Section 1761 Sub D, which says consumers means an individual who seeks or acquires by purchase or lease any goods or services for personal, family, or household purposes. Right. So So tell us about the facts here. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Very excited. So, So what happened in this case is the plaintiff purchased a vehicle. And he purchased the vehicle for his own personal use, but he purchased it through his business. Right. And the reason he testified that he purchased it through his business is because he personally had bad credit. The business didn't have bad credit. Uh, actually, when he filled out the application for, I assume, for a loan or for t- the purchase of the vehicle, uh, he indicated in there that he was purchasing it for his own personal use, but he did purchase it um, in the business's name or through the business in some capacity. And that's what the defendants jumped on.
1: Right. And in fact, um, the, uh, there's an agreement that says it's for personal and not commercial purposes. And then the defendants at some point in this litigation, uh, admitted in a request for admission, further highlighting why RFAs are important, admitted in a request for admission that uh, Mr. Kalta had, in fact, purchased a vehicle for personal use. Yeah,
0: so let's stop right there. The defendant admitted it was for his personal use. And then the defendant turns around at the time of trial and says, you know what, even though we made that admission, since you bought it through your company, you're no longer a um, a consumer within the meaning of the
1: statute. Right. But the trial court instructed the jury that it had been, quote, conclusively established, end quote, that the vehicle was purchased for personal use. So the jury ultimately found by special verdict in favor of the plaintiff here, awarded damages in the amount of ten, uh, a little over $10,000, then awarded punitive damages also nor, uh, in the amount of $10,000, and judgment was entered in favor of the plaintiff. Um, the, ultimately, though, the, uh, the Court of appeal says, look, you don't have to you know, buy it, show that you bought it with your personal funds, and hold title in your personal name in order to be considered a consumer. Over here, clearly well, first, you have the admission, and second of all, you have the testimony of the plaintiff that says, no, it was for personal use. And this is why, in fact, I used uh, business funds to purchase the vehicle. And the last thing I want to
0: say about this case is, for those of you that don't deal with appellate work very often or are in appellate, appellate courts are very sensitive about the record that they get, because they say if it's yeah. not in the record, it didn't happen. And the opening paragraph, the opening sentence in this opinion is, facts we glean the following facts from the rather limited record on appeal, which did not include the pleadings, a transcript of the hearing, the trial exhibits or jury instructions. Yeah,
1: that, that's an important note. Look, the, the Court of Appeal is not looking to screw litigants based on procedural flaws. In fact, I've seen a lot of opinions where they go out of their way and they go, look, this was untimely or that wasn't filed or this box wasn't checked. Or in this case, it's really egregious. You know, you didn't submit any record here uh, to help them, but they still come out what I think is in, in the right way. But be very careful because that can count against you if these the facts aren't so much in your favor.
0: Let's go to our third case today. It's EIC, or EIC, or EIC, EIC. EIC. Eck or Ek or Eck.
1: Eck E C K is Eck. Versus the City of
0: Los Angeles and involves an objector named Carmen Balber B A L B E R, who I think works for Consumer Watchdog, who brought this in interest of fair disclosure. This case involves the Department of Water and Power and I currently have a, a very large case pending against the Department of Water and Power. This case has no relevance in that case, and um, really I am brought this case up because, and I'm not counsel in the case, the Eker Eck case, I'm not counsel on that, but I'm bringing it up because I think it's very interesting issue about objectors. So let's start with that. Sean, explain in detail the objector issue.
1: Well, yeah. Let's start from the top. The a little uh, class action, you know, primer here. Um, when a class action settles, there's something called a preliminary approval hearing. At that point, the, the court takes a look at the settlement and says, "Okay, everything looks good," but we're going to have what's called a final approval hearing. We're going to let you send out notice to everyone, let them know what the settlement is about, what it entails, what's being released on behalf of the class, how much everyone's getting compensated, and you have to, as part of that process, give them the opportunity opportunity. opportunity to object if they find something wrong with the settlement. And that allows class members to to step up, show up, and and, uh, voice their concerns or objections to the court. In order to do that, though, they have to follow strict procedures, they have to file something to court, they have to show up at the final approval hearing, and then if they have any challenge to, or if they have any gripes with how the court deals with their objection and they want to appeal, here's an important note, they need to have tried to intervene in the case. And that comes from a 2018 case called Hernandez versus Restoration Hardware, which requires that any aggrieved party, um, in order to appeal the case, that they need to have some sort of – they have to be parties of record. And without um, intervening in the case, without trying to intervene in the case, they have no standing to appeal.
0: So what happened exactly in this case is the Department of Water and Power was sued in the class action for allegedly overcharging its customers. There was a settlement. Part of the settlement was, I believe, fifty-two million dollar fund that was going to go back to the ratepayers, and then the class lawyers also touted the fact that there was at least two hundred and forty-three million dollars for future savings because of the way it was structured. And the um, objector came along and had two uh, uh, substantial objections. One is that the notice was misleading, and second, that I believe that the it wasn't. Um, uh, clear about the settlement provisions uh, about permitting the DWP to make future transfers to the city of Los Angeles. At least that's the allegation. So the objector comes along through Consumer Watchdog, and the objector um, did file some kind of an ex-party application to intervene. But what happened then is it looks like they never bothered to properly appeal the denial of the um, motion to intervene, and Sean's right. You have to uh, intervene in order to file appeal. That's California law. Because if you haven't intervened, you're not a party. You're not, if a, you're party. not a party. Yeah. You don't have standing
1: yeah so that's what it really is about uh, uh, the subject matter of the case isn't that significant here. The facts of the case aren't it's just the procedure here is uh very interesting and by failing the court to says do that, she you-
0: could have obtained standing yep. um by appealing for the denial of her statutory motion to vacate that's another issue because the two ways you can challenge a class settlement is move to intervene or timely file. A motion to vacate
1: the vacate judgment. Vacate the judgment because ultimately at the end of the case, at final approval, there's a judgment that's entered. Um, so by failing to do that, you have no standing here. The court say- said she didn't challenge the um,
0: motion intervene in her appellate briefs, and she didn't appeal from the denial of her statutory motion to vacate.
1: Yeah. So um,
0: they, they looked at that. They said there's no harmless error uh, it's a jurisdictional thing at the end of the day right it's a
1: jurisdictional defect and there's no harmless error exception which is another uh you know i screwed up type of uh argument that you can make and that there isn't one uh when it comes to appealing right i screwed that thinking.
0: up it's not the harmless error it's that there's no harmless error exception, exception. because it's jurisdictional right. and remember the appellate court only gets cases by way of of jurisdictional um, uh, issues. So it has, you have to file your appeal in timely fashion. There's no way to excuse late filing of an appeal, for example. Right.
1: Okay. Next case we have is Morris versus Hyundai Motor Company. This is also from the second appellate district, came down sometime in September and then it was modified and uh, certified publication in October. Um, this is a, for lack of a better term, Lemon Law case, but more Formerly, it's the Song Beverly Consumer Warranty Act that's codified in Civil Code Section 1790. Um, It has to do with attorney fees. Basic facts are that the plaintiff sued Hyundai after she purchased a defective Hyundai, and um, ultimately uh, they settled the case. But it was a settlement of $85,000 plus reasonable attorney's fees and expenses. Ultimately, they couldn't reach a settlement over the amount of fees, so the plaintiff was forced to file a fee motion. Uh, fee motions in these types of cases are made pursuant to um, uh, a civil code section, which is 1794 within the Beverly Song Act, and, or the Song-Beverly Act, and um, the plaintiff sought $127,000 as a base amount Uh, Lodestar method of just multiplying hours by rates and then uh, wanted to apply a 1.5 times multiplier to that for a grand total of $191,000. And the trial court ultimately awarded $73,000, just north of $73,000. And that's what this appeal arises out of. The plaintiff says they should have gotten more here.
0: All right. So the the one reason why I wanted to include this case was because it deals with a a doctrine or a prohibited – sort of prohibited practice when looking at attorney fees. So when you're making an application for attorney fees, courts are generally not supposed to look at the facts and circumstances of the recovery, the ultimate recovery. They're just supposed to look whether or not the attorney fees are reasonable and fair and justified. And when a court looks at a at the practice of looking at the amount of the recovery, it's called a prohibited
1: proportionality analysis. Did I say that right? I think so. Inappropriate proportionality analysis. Um, prohibited. Comes from, prohibited, sure. Whatever you want to call it. Um, it comes from a case called Hanna, which says that it is inappropriate and an abuse of discretion um, uh, of a trial court's discretion to tie an attorney fee award to the amount of the prevailing buyers or plaintiff's damages or recovering a Song Beverly Act. And that's generally the rule in other types of cases, too. This is even more specific. And by the way, I was talking to Brian about this. We We do a lot of fee motions here after cases, and what you'll come across often are a lot of the appellate cases that give you the authority or that you're arguing both on your motion and in your reply are, are Lemon Law cases. They're Lemon Law yeah, cases. Because there's a lot of fee motion work that comes out of Lemon Law right, cases. Right, and quite
0: often in Lemon Law cases what happens is there's an agreement. We're going to buy the car back or we're going to give the, the, the person who has the car money and allow the lawyer to bring a fee motion. Right. and uh the, so there just seems to be an awful lot of decisional authority, published decisional authority that comes out of these lemon law cases, and it's important to read them it's important to understand them and of course, in these circumstances and situations, you see case where you know it's in seventy fifty eighty thousand dollar payment to the plaintiff. And then the attorney fees end up being, you know, over $100,000. $100, sure. And,
1: and by the way, I, I don't know if we said it, but the uh, the court of appeal ultimately affirms the trial court's decision. Um, well, even because though- there,
0: were, there were some what I would consider to be, you know, potentially bad facts for the plaintiff in this case. Right. And I hate saying bad things about plaintiff firms. And I don't know the facts and I wasn't there and I don't understand. But it, it looks like for this Lemon Law case, they brought another law firm in. Yep. They had yeah. numerous lawyers working on
1: this case. They don't affirm it. Uh, they don't necessarily affirm the trial court doing an improper proportionality. No, actually, analysis. they reject that. They, they reject that. They say no, but they 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 say no. That isn't proper because there's a comment that the trial court makes on the record, which is: so this is a fee. Rec- uh, this is a request for one hundred ninety-two thousand dollars for a case that you settled for eighty-five thousand and didn't go to trial. Don't you think that's just on its face a little? Uh, don't you think that? just on its face, that's a little much. I mean, that's that kind
0: of statement right there does look like they're inappropriately applying a proportionality analysis.
1: But then they go through the other reasons articulated in the, in the, in the, in the actual trial, trial court, court decision, decision. Right. and they say, that's fine. The court conduct, can conduct its own analysis. They can reduce the rates. They can um, discount some of the hours that were worked. So what the trial court does here is get rid of the hours for some of the uh, partners and associates that worked on the case. They reduce the hours, but not They don't slash it like crazy. You know They reduce $600 an hour down to uh, 500 or 350 down to 300 things like that. I mean, things to remember is if
0: you do have multiple lawyers working on a case, you need to give an explanation or, or a rational oh, explanation absolutely. for it. Yeah. You need to make it so it doesn't look like it's just been a billing frenzy. It doesn't look that way. Uh, and, of course, we don't know what ultimately really happened in this case and what the lawyers what they engaged in. But I, the other reason I really put this case on here is, you know, one of the issues that I I, I think a lot about – is the cost of litigation in California? So let's assume that they did bill one
1: hundred ninety-two thousand dollars, or what was it before the uh, Loadstar? One hundred and twenty-seven thousand, and I think the hours are even highlighted in here. If I find it, all you- yeah, it's two hundred eighty-three hours of build work, which isn't well, that much, which isn't crazy, which I mean, isn't crazy. Yeah, I work that in in you know over a course of three months. That's how much time I put in in. in- in the office? Yeah, yeah, the, the 283. That works out to, like, very minimal amount per week. Believe me, I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah believe yeah. me, I know.
0: Yeah. So, but the reason I bring it up is because I think that um, litigations become incredibly unwieldy. That's a big word for you, Sean. It's become difficult. It's become expensive. Uh, the law firms out there on the other side of cases will work the, you know, heck out of a case. They'll they'll overwork it. They'll make your life difficult. And it's just expensive. yeah. I
1: kind of sympathize with the plaintiffs here because one of the arguments they made is: look, the other side filed a bunch of unnecessary motions. They dragged it out. They dragged it out, and then There's we finally got to be a better way of so, handling
0: smaller yeah. lawsuits in California. I'm not talking about you know small claims. I'm not talking about un- or unlimited or limited jurisdiction. I'm just talking about. No one should pay a hundred thousand dollars to have to litigate a two hundred thousand dollar case, for example.
1: Right? right, and and I'm sure the naysayers or the the defense bar will say, well, no one's paying that much money. This is done on a contingency, or this is done with the promise that you uh, you know the sometimes. plaintiff's lawyer makes a free award afterwards. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. I, I think that's the value of the work that the plaintiff's lawyer is putting in. Sometimes and, and, and these mean, people wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't for a contingency. Sometimes people. But I'm
0: talking. Listen, there's a breach of contract case where they are paying an hourly, yeah, and they're fighting yeah. over a couple hundred thousand dollars, and it. it It's oftentimes no fault of the lawyer. It's just the system. It's the way things are set up. It's discovery. It goes on and on and on. And so I think if you're faced in a situation where you have a fee motion, you're bringing a fee motion, and you put a lot into a relatively small case – need to point that out to the court.
1: Yeah, and you need to point out if you're doing it on a contingency fee basis, you got to point that out too. You got to say without us having this type of social utility and taking on cases and really risking putting our time, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours on the line, um, we should be compensated for that. And and we're not being piggish here. We're we're investing. And if it wasn't for us, nobody else would have brought this motion because this particular plaintiff, uh, and, and that's often the case in these consumer cases, they don't have money to hire a lawyer Right.
0: I always want to know how much the other side spent. How much did they spend? How were their rates? How many hours did they spend on the case?
1: Right. So if the other side ever makes the argument that the rates are too high or you Get spend too rates. much time on it, you know you should come back and say, No, well, we want their rates. And you there know, are surveys that briefings. exist out there about the going rates in law firms. Yeah. The, the, the survey in this case was, for some reason, uh, rejected or, or the uh, objection to it was sustained. I'm not sure what the issue was for that. So we should maybe dig into that. Um, but Morris versus Hyundai Motor Company, a good case, a good primer on that. Don't necessarily, I feel bad for the outcome. I don't necessarily disagree but anyway so thank that's you. all right yep that's all for today short cases short posts uh thank you for tuning in you can find us online at kbklawyers.com we appreciate your feedback we appreciate you listening and um hope to see you soon thank you